0: last couple of stanzas that we sang, they're really the Lord Jesus Christ by His Spirit singing to us, reminding us about what we're going to hear in this story. His chosen friend in whom He put His trust, who ate His bread, turned in wrath against Jesus to crush Him in the dust. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. This morning, beginning at the first verse there, and we're going to quickly read through this entire chapter. Of course, we won't take the time to look at each part of it in detail, but it is a unit that goes together. So we'll read it as the Spirit has given it to us. Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 1. As we continue along in this gospel, here is God's holy word. Now the feast of the unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. For they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. And they were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. And he replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow to the house. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house. The teacher asks, where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room and it's all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and they found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover And when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is My body given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, after the supper, He took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood, which is poured out for you, but the hand of Him who is going to betray Me is with Mine on the table. And the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays Him. They began to question among themselves, Which of them it might be who would do this. And also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves the benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves and you are those who have stood by me in my trials and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. And he said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it. A bag, take it. If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written. And He was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in Me. Yes, what is written about Me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, He replied. And Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. And His disciples followed Him. And on reaching the place, He said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them and knelt down and prayed, Father, if You are willing, take this cup from Me, yet not My will but Yours be done. And an angel from heaven appeared to Him and strengthened Him. And being in anguish, He prayed more earnestly and His sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And when He rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them and he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers, the temple guard and the elders who had come for him. Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. And seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. And Peter followed at a distance when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and he had sat down together. Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in firelight, and she looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. A little later, someone saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. And about an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, that rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter, and Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him, for the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And Peter went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who was it that just hit you? And they said many other insulting things to Jesus. At daybreak, the council of the elders and of the people, both of the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And they all asked, are you then the Son of God? And he replied, you are right in saying that I am. And then they said, Why do we need any more testimony now we've heard it from his own lips? So far, the reading of God's holy word. Beloved ones in the Lord Jesus Christ, it has been a long time coming in this story. But the time is obviously finally here. Jesus has been all along making cryptic references to His death. But any time the opposition would press in around Him, He would escape it, for it was not yet His time. But we see very clearly in chapter 22, at least four markers, that it is time for Jesus to lay down his life. I mean, first of all, he decides to sit down to eat the Passover meal with his disciples and to institute the Lord's Supper. And he says something very interesting about that in verses 15 and 16. He says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And what did Jesus mean when He says, I will not eat the Passover meal again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God? He meant that He had come Himself to fulfill the Passover meal. To bring a completion to that Old Testament ceremony which was about a lamb being slaughtered so that the people of Israel would not be slaughtered. He fulfills the Passover feast. He brings it to an end because He is the Holy Lamb of God who will be slain for His people. There will be no more need for the celebration of a Passover feast because He is bringing it to fulfillment. But of course, you notice the language. I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment. In other words, I will be eating a meal again with my followers. But of course, it won't be the Passover meal. The Passover meal and the blessed fellowship that Jesus had with His disciples is something pointing forward to that great wedding feast at the end of time that we will celebrate with the Lord Jesus Christ when the Kingdom comes in its fullness. Of course, He had to fulfill the Old Testament Passover to bring us to the great wedding feast which is awaiting all of us as the people of God. In the meantime here, He has instituted the Lord's Supper before He dies as a meal which nourishes us in body and soul and keeps us until the great day of the wedding feast. And Jesus had to institute that supper before He actually suffered and died and was no longer with us in this world. It's also clear that the death of Christ is now coming because Jesus gives them very unique instructions. He gives His disciples very unique instructions considering the intensity of the opposition that He is going to face when He is arrested and put to death. And you see this strange words in verses 35 and following. He says, When I sent you out a long time ago, remember when I sent you on your first mission, I sent you without purse or bag or sandals. And you lacked nothing, right? And they agreed. But He said to them, Now if you have a purse, take it. And if you have a bag, also take it. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, He was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in Me. Yes, what is written about Me is reaching its fulfillment. Jesus knew it was time now to take a step back and allow the people who had been seeking to kill Him all along to actually carry out their plans. And when He looked at the disciples, He knew that that would increase the opposition that they would be facing personally too. And He wanted to give them, given that circumstance, a right and a place to defend themselves. You see, supernaturally, when the disciples were facing opposition all along because it was not time yet for Jesus to die, Jesus would see to it that they would be defended. He would arrange the circumstances. He would arrange history. He would decide where to press and where to back off. He would take them places where they were not in immediate danger. But you see, now because it is time for Him to die, He will not be protecting Himself, nor will He be protecting them physically So He allows them to take a sword to defend themselves so that they will not be killed in this terrible opposition that they will be facing as He is going unto death. There's another thing that clearly indicates to us that the time of His death is near, and that is that Jesus begins to wrestle with the idea that He is facing the cross. Now, of course, Jesus knew all along his entire life that he had to drink the cup of wrath for the sins of you and the sins of me. But as he is drawing near to the actual event, the weight of his calling begins to press in upon him, doesn't it? Verse 42, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. And this is Jesus, according to His humanity, Facing something that he has never experienced, but he is frightened to face it. This is Jesus considering all of the weighty sins of the human race. This is Jesus having walked around for approaching 33 years now and seeing all of the disastrous consequences of sin in the world and seeing all the times that he has been forsaken even by his close followers And the worst kind of forsaking, even right here before Him, by one of His chosen ones, Peter. One of the elect unto salvation for whom He will go to the cross. Peter, not Judas, but Peter. Thinking about the punishment that Peter deserves for sinning against Jesus in this way, and yet knowing that He will take on Himself the punishment of the cross. And this is weighing down upon Him. And when He considers the weight of the anguish that He is going to have to to suffer through, it becomes a temptation for Him, according to His humanity, to want to resist that calling of the Father. And if you want to just get a little bit of an insight into how difficult this decision to go to the cross is for Jesus, think about the strong times in which you are tempted. To sin against the Lord. And you all know those times, and you know where that line is drawn too, don't you? When you face a clear decision of whether to obey or disobey God. And you know the allures of the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, and the allures of sin against the law for some. Temporary pleasure, right? And you know the power of that temptation, don't you? And how difficult it is to resist temptation. Even given all of the resources that we have and our salvation by grace through faith in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit now to decide to go after Christ and not follow our own sins and pleasures. But imagine facing a kind of temptation that even doesn't... Compare really to that. The whole human race has despised you. And you have never done anything wrong. And you have lived a perfect life before God and before all of the people. And constantly, you are suffering. And now you have to go to the cross to suffer for them. Imagine the weight of the temptation to resist the Father's will. To rather call down the angels of God to bring judgment on this fallen human race. All of them. And to wipe them out completely as they deserve. Imagine the weight. And think about the shame and the guilt that we have experienced when we have compromised and given ourselves into temptation. Just your own guilt and shame. Think about that for a minute. And think about the wrath of God that it deserves and multiply that by all the elect in the history of the universe. And that is what Jesus is facing. This is why, this is why He is in anguish. And He is pleading with the Father to give Him a way out that is different if it is possible. And He is praying so earnestly that His sweat was drops like drops of blood falling to the ground. No other way to describe it. Obviously, His death is near. Another clear indication that Jesus' death is imminent is that He has obviously resigned Himself to that purpose in the sense that before when the Sanhedrin would send out their minions to try and trap Jesus as they had been doing in the temple and as they had been seeking for quite a while now to find some way to trap him and to kill him because he was a threat to their power and to their authority. He had always escaped. He had always come up with the answer that both spoke the truth and also deflected the criticism. Because it was not yet time for Him to die. But that's not what happens in the story. I don't know if you noticed that. But at the end of the chapter, it is very clear that Jesus has decided to let them have their way. I mean, they were guarding Jesus in verse 33 and mocking Him and beating Him. And they are blindfolding Him and demanding, prophesy who hit you. And they said many other insulting things to Him. And what did He do? Nothing. Nothing. He did nothing. Why? Because it was time. What did they do? What did Jesus do when they came to Him in verse 67? If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. He said, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I asked you, you wouldn't answer. From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the majesty of God. So they press Him again with a question. Is that another evading question, Jesus? Are you then the Son of God? And He said, you are right in saying that I am. And look how they respond. Well, we don't need any more testimony. We've heard it from His own lips. In other words, Jesus gave them the exact answer, the clear answer that they needed to hear to arrest Him, to lay Him with the charge of claiming to be God so that they put Him to death for blasphemy. He is not evading their questions anymore. He is not answering them in cryptic ways. He is telling them very plainly who He is and letting them have their way. Because as He said in verse 53... This is the hour when darkness reigns. All of these things make it clear that Jesus' death is imminent. So then the question that this chapter sets before us is of all the characters and the people that are in this story, where do you fit in? I mean, how is it that you relate to the death of Jesus Christ? I mean, this is in many ways, you could say the culmination of everything that has gone on before in the Gospel. This has been destined of Christ all along that He would be rejected and despised. And there are quite a few characters and groups of characters in this story. And you've got to figure out which ones you identify with. I mean, first of all, there are these chief priests and teachers of the law, right? These are the ones in verse 2. They've been looking for some way to get rid of Jesus for some time because they're afraid of the people. They haven't been able to do it. So they're looking for a better way. These are the ones who have uh, gathered around to insult Jesus and to press and make charges against Him to put Him to death. We're not going to spend too much time talking about them. We've seen them all along. But what was the problem with the chief priests and the scribes? They don't relate properly to Christ's death. In fact, they are going to put Him to death. Well, their problem was they thought that God would accept them because they were obedient to His laws. And they thought they were good. And if you think that you are good, then you are on the side of the chief priests and the enemies of Christ. We believe as Christians that we are not good people. But we are sinful people that have been saved by the death of the One who died to take away the punishment for our sins. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders thought because they were religious and they were faithful in many ways to the Old Testament religion that God would accept them because of who they are and what they had done. And if any of us believe that today, care how religious and how faithful we are in our lives, in our church, then we are not on Christ's side and we are lost. The testimony of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes to us this morning is that we should always be humbly acknowledging that we have nothing but the blood of Christ which gives us life. I want you to think about the guards too who were mocking Jesus. They represent a specific kind of obstinacy toward Christ that is common today. The men who were guarding in verse 33, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating Him and then they blindfolded Him and they would hit Him and demand of Him, prophesy, who is it that hit you? along with the other insults that they were giving. What were they trying to do? Well, they were saying, listen, for all of the talk that we have heard about you performing miracles, for all the wonderful works that we have seen you perform, even ourselves, well then, when you're blindfolded and I smack you, then you should be able to tell us which one of the guards it is that hit you. And these are people who in the face of all of the obvious evidence of the glory of Christ and Him being the Messiah and speaking the truth of God would still reject Him because He was a threat to them. He was a threat to their own arrogance. He was a threat to them humbling themselves and repenting from their sin and following after Christ in the life of discipleship. And there are many people like that today too. People who are familiar with what Jesus has done in the Scripture. People who see the clear testimony that Jesus was walking around in the world, raising people from the dead, healing people who were sick, putting fish in a lake where there were no fish, and yet making all kinds of excuses why they will not believe His claim. We read at the outset of Luke's Gospel that he wrote these things in order to assure us of the truth of the things that we have been taught. And yet, some of you hear the Gospel, you hear the Scripture proclaimed, you hear the power of Christ proclaimed, you live in Christ's creation where His glory is displayed, and you still yet refuse to submit yourself to the yoke of Christ. You still are skeptical You're like the guards who are mocking Jesus. Demanding an answer from Him when He has clearly displayed His glory already. You would be on the wrong side of His death if that is you. There's Judas Iscariot. There's Judas also. And he is a different class of person relating to the death of Christ. And there are two particular things that Judas is... Known for in this passage, his first is the love of money. And if you would go back and do a study of Judas Iscariot's life through the other Gospels, you would find that money was the common theme for him. It was that he loved money, and that is why he followed Jesus all along. You know, he saw that there was power in this Jesus guy. And that he, although he was marginalized by the establishment, certainly did gain a good amount of followers. And it's not hard for you to recognize that people will think this way, right? You see all the charlatans and the hucksters, the money grubbers today. The people who take religion as a means to get rich. The Apostle Paul warned about people like that. You'll see the power that comes in the Word of God and in the Christian religion and then people who have nothing to do with Christ and nothing to do with seeking the will of God attach themselves or put on the cloak of Christianity of following Jesus in order to make money. And then as soon as it became evident to Judas Iscariot, right, that Jesus was not going to bring him the riches that he otherwise expected. He sought out a deal with the enemies of Christ to make money in handing Him over. Verse 3, Satan enters Judas called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. It's like, as diligent as the chief priests and the scribes and the elders were in seeking to put Jesus to death, they didn't even think of being able to infiltrate the twelve who in in all outward senses had left everything to follow Jesus, they wouldn't even dare to try and and break up that circle. But Judas himself was so evil that he approached them knowing that they were seeking a way to betray him. And cut a deal. Look at that, verse 5. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. Doesn't that make it sound like Judas is the one who offered to receive a bribe? Oh, you mean all it's going to cost us is money? Let's set it up. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. This is one of the characteristics of the reprobate. The reprobate, meaning the ones whom God has passed over in his justice to let them die in their own sins. The character of the reprobate, mind you, who are in the church. It is the people who are in Christianity for money. And what makes them tick in every area of their lives is their money. And you may curse their family, you may curse their friends, you may curse them, but never touch their money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You cannot serve both God and money. And if you love and serve money, repent. Repent. The other characteristic of this insider who's really an outsider and an enemy of Christ and an enemy of the cross is that he comes to betray Jesus with a kiss. It's this false, phony, piety This false phony expression of his commitment to Jesus. And you know, this is another characteristic of reprobate who find themselves within the church. It's that they're always about outward displays. Everybody knowing that they are the ones who are following Jesus the closest. They are the ones who have to make the comments about how holy they are. And the comments about how everybody else doesn't measure up to their level or their standard of holy living. I mean, the sense you get when Judas approaches, when Jesus asks him, are you betraying Judas, the son of man, with a kiss? It almost surprises Jesus, again, according to his humanity, right? It almost surprises him that Judas would go and display that kind of a an obvious, fake love toward Christ. Of course, we know from the parallel accounts that that was part of the plan, the one whom Jesus, whom Judas would approach and kiss, they would know that would be Him or that that was the timing to seize Jesus. But He calls out that false piety. A lot of people have been in churches all their life. They make a business of dressing a certain way and of appearing a certain way and of saying certain words that give them the assurance that God accepts them somehow. But let me tell you, God sees right through that to the heart. And if that's you caring more about what other people think, about making yourself feel better than other people, then repent because you're on the wrong side of the cross. There are the disciples in the story. And of course, they are distraught when they hear Jesus at the table telling them that one of them is going to betray him. And they enter into a debate trying to figure out which one it will be. But it's obvious that that debate just falls right into an argument about which one of them will be the greatest. Isn't that amazing? I mean, they are saddened. They're struck. They want to figure out who is going to betray Jesus maybe so that they can protect Jesus from being betrayed. And it's spills over into argument about who will be greatest. What is this? This is pride. This is pride among the people of God. And Jesus needs to address them and remind them that He is going to the cross and that His ethic is different from that of the world. You see, Jesus says, Look, I'm going to the cross in order to forgive your sins so that I may grant you a glorious kingdom. But part of me granting you the kingdom where you will be ruling on the universal throne in the end, part of you being satisfied and glorified in the end is that you will go through the kind of suffering and the humility and the service that I had to go through while I was here. That's what he's telling them. The mark of Christian discipleship should be service and humility. And notice, these are the disciples These are the ones who are the followers of Christ. We're not talking about Judas. We're not talking about the chief priests and the teachers of the law. But we're talking about Christian people. You and me, who are tempted with pride. Who are tempted to think that our calling in this life is to be comfortable. And to get what is due to us. Aren't we entitled to everything after all? And Jesus says to us, no. Because the greatest among you will be a servant. And you think about all the callings that Jesus has given you in your life. And it could be in the church if you are called to an office of the church, a pastor, elder, or deacon. It could be your earthly calling where you are working in a setting where you don't like it. You are not given your just appreciation. It could be any of the difficult providences that God sends into your life. It could be any difficulty that you are having in a relationship where it is just not fair. And Jesus says, that is the place for My servants. That is the great place. The place of suffering. The pattern of suffering for a time so that you will receive the glories that come. The pattern of serving and giving yourself more and more, even when you are despised and rejected and unappreciated. Because simply it is your privilege to follow the pattern of Christ who has delivered you from the pangs of hell. And when you grow weary, you don't resist and then argue about who will be the greatest or demand that all you deserve to receive should be yours, but you look humbly to Christ and you thank Him for the privilege of loving and serving even your enemies as He has loved you. And fulfilling your calling and going beyond your calling and sacrificing your very lives for the benefit of other people and for the service of Christ and His Kingdom as a privilege. I will tell you, this is one of the great Temptations of Christians that we see is that everybody's always offended at what other people have done to them, and nobody ever gets me what I deserve. This happens all the time, and Jesus calls these people to follow after the pattern of suffering. There's also, along with that attitude of service and humility, Him calling us not to be spiritually lazy. This is what's going on when he's praying in the garden and he's about to go to death. And they don't realize because they overestimate the strength of their own faith and their own sanctification and how they'll always be on Jesus' side, right? You know, they overestimate the strength of their faith and of their sanctification. They don't realize how close they are to sinning greatly against the Lord. And that's exactly what, of course, Peter did in the story, right? We'll talk about him in a minute. But you know, Jesus is going to the cross. They are going to face severe persecution and their faith is going to be stretched and they think that they can take the time to sleep to neglect their spiritual duties. I don't think I have to tell you that spiritual laziness is a problem in Christ's church. And it's a problem for us as His disciples. Consider the attendance to public worship in our congregation here. Consider that Christ says that I will meet you Lord's Day by Lord's Day. Through the preaching of the Word, you will hear the voice of Christ. And consider that you will have your mystical union with Him intensified through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and through the sacrament of baptism. And consider how many people, professing Christian people, will treat church as an option. Or as something that we can go along with if I'm not too tired. Not to speak anything of our private disciplines. The chief part of our gratitude, as the catechism says, to be faithful in prayer. As if we are so strong, we don't need this. Maybe we think we have a few theological things straight in our heads so we don't need to be devoted to the means of grace. Or maybe we think we've been in long enough, we're stable, we're able to stand. But I have other needs beside this stuff like, you know, It's preaching sometimes long and sometimes hard to listen to. Maybe a little boring. certainly not like the TV, is it? The Lord's Supper. I mean, come on. Power in this little bread and wine. Listen, we're not as strong as we think we are. Spiritual laziness. How can you sleep? Given the magnitude of what is going on, that Christ has saved us from our sins, and that the world is always pressing in against us to get us to compromise and to walk away from the faith, and if not that, to sin greatly against the Lord and grieve the Holy Spirit who is alive in us and who was, by His grace, willing to make us alive when we were dead. Simon Peter is the classic example in the story. We'll close with this. Simon Peter is the classic example of self-sufficiency. He can do it on His own. I am confident that I am so zealous for You, Lord, that I will never forsake You. Well, little do you know, Peter, it's going to be three times today that you are going to deny me. It's not even going to take long. You're going to cower away from a little girl. And you know that Peter's conscience was tearing him apart when he lied to those three people. That's why he went outside and wept bitterly when Jesus gazed at him. Because he looked at himself and he was brought to an understanding that Jesus needed to bring to Peter, that he was weak. This goes back to our whole self-understanding of being humble and not thinking that we're good people and not thinking that our faith is strong. Part of our profession as Christians, if we are on the right side of the cross, is that our whole life is in the cross. All of it. Because we're pathetic and weak. And that is not a message that is going to spiral our church or our churches into the hundreds of thousands of people and to be at the forefront of every cultural place so that people will listen to us because they'll say Christianity is for weak people. Well, you know what? Christianity is for weak people but the point is everybody's weak and you've got to acknowledge it. You've got to see that Christ will have none of this self-sufficiency, Peter. He's trying to teach Peter, I have to be going to the cross because you are weak. Of course, Christ has in mind that when Peter grasps this and grasps the fact that Christ has not rejected him, but yet he has accepted him because of his own work, that he will be able to go back to his brothers and strengthen them. And I do the same for you today. We are all weak. We are all arrogant. We are all compromising and lazy. But find your life in Christ and go forward in thankful obedience as it is our privilege to do to that all God's people said amen let us pray father humble us rid us of our sense of entitlement and pride rid of us rid of us any self righteousness any weariness in doing that which is good, let us truly believe that the great place is one of humility and service, is one of meekness, and one of loving You and loving our neighbors above ourselves. And strengthen us through that righteous body and blood of Christ, He who went to the cross for us. We thank You for Him. And that acknowledging our complete unworthiness, that He indeed loves us. Thank You that You remind us of that this morning. We ask in Christ's name alone. Amen. Our song is number 354. 354. It's a song. It's an old song. Jesus, keep me near the cross. In all of our ways, in all of our thoughts, we are indebted to the cross of Christ, which is our life. Let's sing these uh, first three stanzas with the refrain. Three stanzas, 354. Form number one for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. The Lord ordained the Holy Supper as a constant memorial and visible proclamation of his death. As we partake of the supper, we testify that the Lord Jesus took upon himself our flesh and blood and bore the wrath of God on the cross for us. Let us be persuaded as we eat and drink that God will always love and accept us as his children for the sake of his son. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? When Paul calls the eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup a participation in the body and blood of Christ, we are reminded that as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are fed with his crucified body and shed blood. To this end, he gives us his life-giving spirit through whom the body and blood of our Lord become the life-giving nourishment of our souls. In this way, He unites us more and more to Himself and imparts the precious benefits of His sacrifice to all who partake in faith. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let each of us be sure then that we trust Christ alone. For our salvation, believing that our sins are forgiven wholly by His grace for the sake of our Lord's sacrifice on the cross. Let us be sure that we resolve to live in faith and obedience before the Lord and in love and peace with each other and our neighbors. This warning is not designed to discourage penitent sinners from coming to the table. For we are confident that the Savior accepts us at His table when we come in humble faith and with sorrow for sins and with the will of following as He commands. You see, we have... A responsive reading here. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, lift up your hearts. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for all the blessings of your grace, but most of all, we thank you for the unspeakable gift of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that your son came to us as true man, that he lived a perfect, obedient life on earth and that he died for us on the cross and that he arose victoriously from the grave. And we bless you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, for the gospel of reconciliation, for the church universal, for the ministry and sacraments of the church, for the blessed hope of everlasting life. Grant us your spirit that through this sacrament, our souls may truly be fed with the crucified body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it, and He said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take, eat, remember, and believe that the body of our Lord Jesus Christ has been given for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take, drink, remember, and believe that the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ has been given for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. Number 484. great, triumphant song. We remember the death of Christ for us. We are completely forgiven. And we go forward in light of the cross, in thankful obedience to Him. Let's sing these three stanzas as He leads us forward. Number 484. Let me remind you, we will give you the customary ten minutes or so before you hear the buzzer to come in for the Sunday school class. But loved ones of the people of God, receive then His parting word of blessing. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And may His grace and His peace be with your spirit. Amen.